welcome to Cinema Wellman. I'm your host, David. And before things start to get dark in here today, and they will, I wanted to share some fun news. Two days after the Cinema Wellman baby episode, great timing, production crew, uh, my new great nephew, Lincoln, joined us on the planet. And about a fortnight later, my new cousin, Margot, arrived. Babies and moms and dads are all doing well. And uh, we are pleased to add two new members to the Cinema Wellman family. And I hope to still be here doing this when they learn to read. Uh, <laughs> I was sent a video of Lincoln watching our show on YouTube, which, of course, made me cry. Um, now it's about to get bleak because today we're going to look at a handful of excellent films that, while being fantastic, do not lend themselves to repeat viewings. Unless you're into masochism, of course. That's your bag. That's your bag. Uh, the subject matter is overwhelming. And since these films are so well done, their impact is also overwhelming. Now, I don't know about you, but I absolutely love re-watching movies I enjoy. I have a database, <laughs> what a shocker, of movies that I have seen more than three times. Of course, only verified viewings were accepted for that database, which means I had to scroll it somewhere and then read it later. Hmm. In any event, there were a few hundred films on that list uh, that I've seen, movies I've seen more than three times. You move the bar up to five different viewings, there are a few dozen in that category as well. I watched Jaws pretty much every 4th of July and have for many, many years. I uh, on road trips, if I was traveling on road trips cross-country during the summer, I would bring the DVD player, the speaker, everything. I'd bring it so I could watch it in a hotel room no matter where I was. Uh, there was a stretch when I watched Casablanca every New Year's Eve. Um, my all-time record for viewings is probably The Road Warrior, 30-plus viewings. But Jaws may be catching up uh, pretty soon. So I definitely enjoy multiple viewings of films. Just asked Lisa about Midnight Run. She couldn't understand why I would watch that over and over and over. She'd walk into the room. You're watching Midnight Run again? Yes. Yes, I am. Um, some people are one and done when it comes to movies and books, and I totally get that, and that's fine. But I'm all about revisiting movies and looking for things I missed the first or second or third time especially films that are well-made, feature quality talent, a compelling story, and evoke feelings and emotions within me. Most of the time, that is. Because today's films are examples of movies that are extremely well-made, critically acclaimed, and award-winning in many cases, while at the same time being movies that I hope to never see again. And I liked all of them. So this is, I'm not trashing any of these films. These films are fantastic. Um, okay, so a horrible film from 1975 was titled Once is Not Enough. In the case of today's movies, Once is Enough. Actually, more than enough. Let's begin with a movie that was rated X when it was released. This film also spawned copycat crimes, which caused the director to remove it from theaters in the UK. It's 1971's A Clockwork Orange, directed, of course, by Stanley Kubrick. I'm going to start each film with the IMDb uh, synopsis. And if, um, 
if there was a poster that had some kind of description, I'm also going to share that with you. So here's Clockwork Orange from IMDb. In the future, a sadistic gang leader is imprisoned and volunteers for a conduct aversion experiment, but it doesn't go as planned. The poster reads, being the adventures of a young man whose principal interests are rape, ultraviolence, and Beethoven. Truth be told, I have seen A Clockwork Orange more than once, but since it was part of Warren Tower's regular Cinema 700 rotation on Friday and Saturday nights, I don't think I've ever seen this movie totally straight. All of those inebriated, drug-addled screenings probably add up to one sober viewing, so it qualifies for this list, especially since I never want to see it again. The sadistic gang leader is played by Malcolm McDowell, who directs his droogs, that's his gang, in all manner of brutal beatings and attacks, many of which are difficult to sit through. A little of the ultra-violence, as they called it. Well, when Alex and the droogs' luck runs out, he is incarcerated and then volunteers for a rehabilitation project. This conduct aversion project is almost as difficult to watch as the ultra-violence Alex is strapped down with his eyes held open by metal appendages. Alex is then repeatedly shown images of violence and sadism in an effort to sicken him enough to rehabilitate him. McDowell's corneas were scratched several times during the filming of these segments. And if you look at these metal pieces keeping his eyes wide open, you can see why they damaged his eyes. Now, if this film was made today... That would all be CGI. And Malcolm McDowell had had his eyes kept wide open. There was a, the actor next to him isn't an actor. It's a doctor who is between takes squirting liquid into his eyes. So his eyes don't dry out. Oh my goodness. One of the most famous sequences in this film involves a savage attack on a couple that involves the brutal rape of a woman, all set to the melodies of singing in the rain. It's unbelievably disturbing, and you'll never hear that song the same again after seeing this scene. Director Stanley Kubrick paid $10,000 for the rights to use the song, and its use totally disgusted Hollywood legend Gene Kelly, as it is, you know, kind of his song. Speaking of the film's music, it's tremendous. Kubrick's use of beautiful classical music by Rossini and Beethoven provide a striking contrast to the scenes of brutality they accompany. I I bought this, you know, I have the LP. And the oh the music is just tremendous. Fantastic. I'll listen to this again. I won't watch the film again. This is an amazing film that says a lot about violence and society and I am glad to have seen it. But now I'm done. Next, let's go to 1997's Boogie Nights, directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. IMDb. Back when sex was safe, pleasure was business, and business was booming. An idealistic porn producer aspires to elevate his craft to an art when he discovers a hot young talent. The poster reads, The life of a dreamer, the days of a business, and the nights in between. More full disclosure, I've seen Boogie Nights twice. I saw it in the theater, liked it enough to buy the DVD, watch the DVD once, 
and has been removed from the official collection, never to be screened again. I think I gave it to someone at this point because I, I don't have it. If I did, I would hold it up right now to show you. Uh, as is the case with every film on this list, Boogie Nights is a phenomenal film. The cast is tremendous. Burt Reynolds, Julianne Moore, John C. Riley, Don Cheadle, William H. Macy, Heather Graham, and the great Philip Seymour Hoffman, one of my favorite of his roles, are all amazing, delivering realistic and gut-wrenching performances. Director Paul Thomas Anderson once said that this film is about finding a family, even though it's about the porn industry. One of the saddest things about these characters is that most of them are desperate to move on from adult films to do other things in life, but these plans always seem to get derailed. Anderson also admits that none of the characters really change during the film. He says maybe 1%. They're pretty much the same people we meet at the start of the movie. They endure some brutal experiences that you would think would change a person, but they're essentially the same people at the end. That's rough. Very sad. As is our next film, from 2000, directed by Darren Aronofsky, Requiem for a Dream. IMDb. The drug-induced utopias of four Coney Island people are shattered when their addictions run deep. Premier Magazine, oh, I miss you so much, <laughs> had this film on their list of 25 most dangerous movies, and now I need to find that list. That's If I find that list, that's an episode. It's really difficult to explain this film, other than saying it's about addiction and the depths of human despair. It will have your heart racing, you will be cringing, and you will be sobbing uncontrollably. Wash, rinse, repeat. And the repetition is fast and furious. Director Darren Aronofsky shot and had the film cut like a music video. Now, the average 100-minute film contains six to 700 cuts. Requiem for a Dream contains over 2,000 cuts. This frenetic pacing is disorienting at times and reminiscent of a fever dream. Ellen Burstyn, Jared Leto, Jennifer Connelly, and Marlon Wayans are the addicts in the story, and they all turn in stunning performances with plenty of depth to their characters. Part of me actually wants to revisit this, but I'm kind of leery to do so. I think I'm going to watch the trailer, and if the trailer kind of guides me to say, you should see this again, I will. And if it says, you've seen enough, I'll move on. <laughs> Next up is another Paul Thomas Anderson movie. Anyone in the mood for a milkshake? From 2007, There Will Be Blood. IMDb, a story of family, religion, hatred, oil, and madness, focusing on a turn-of-the-century prospector in the early days of the business. In a move reminiscent of my Boogie Nights experience, I saw There Will Be Blood in the theater, loved it, bought the DVD. Here's the DVD. I've never watched it. The DVD itself describes this film as a, quote, epic American nightmare. 
I have to admit that I may be the only person to include this film on a list of this kind. I have friends who've seen it multiple times. It's not the subject matter that's disturbing to me in this movie. It's really Daniel Day-Lewis. He's terrifying. He's so menacing and evil in this film that I remember cowering in the theater, hoping he wouldn't notice me. Daniel Day-Lewis can have that effect on people. Bill the Butcher in Gangs of New York also had that effect on me. And for the record, I do not have a Paul Thomas Anderson problem. He makes wonderful films. They just tend to haunt me. The final film on today's list is proof that Nicolas Cage can indeed act. Or at least he could in 1995. We have directed by Mike Figgis, Leaving Las Vegas. IMDb. Ben Sanderson, a Hollywood screenwriter who lost everything because of alcoholism, arrives in Las Vegas to drink himself to death. Requiem for a Dream had Coney Island and heroin. Leaving Las Vegas has Las Vegas and booze. Lots and lots of booze. Nicolas Cage deservedly won an Oscar as Ben Sanderson, whose career has been destroyed by alcohol, and he then decides to drown himself in Sin City. Elizabeth Shue plays Sarah, a sex worker Cage meets and takes with him as he spirals downward. He would only take her with him if she promises not to interfere with what he wants to do and intends to do. It's so sad. There is a scene in this film in which um, Sarah, Elizabeth Shue's character, is savagely beaten and gang-raped in a hotel room that I could barely watch. I have no idea how they film scenes like that. Every film on this list is about addiction in some form or another, whether it be sex, heroin, power, alcohol, or one of the many other things we humans can become addicted to. Once in its grip, it's difficult to escape. Most stories of addiction focus on the user surviving from fix to fix. They want to live, if only to get that next high. Leaving Las Vegas is kind of worse because Cage's character has given up and decided to end his life with the same substance that ruined it. This is one tough watch that I could only watch once. Movies like these tend to be exhausting. Well, that's a wrap from here at Cinema Wellman. Uh, I hope we didn't bring the room down too much with these films, but they are very much worth seeing at least once and discussing. We hope you join us next week as we do our annual Best Picture Rundown. All 10 Best Picture nominees have been screened, and we will be ranking them next week. The impossible task, of course. Not that we know anything. We never claim to know anything. Uh, we just know what we like. And until then, take care.